Hello again, and welcome back finally to your favorite storytelling podcast, Tales from a Cult Insider. This is episode three. I am your host, your chief storyteller and happy ice cream eater, Jared Garrett. Uh, I'm going to add that I also like cake. Uh, specifically, I really like Costco sheet cake and devil's food cake as made by my delightful wife, Anne-Marie, who um, makes so many wonderful layers. She just is the best person on the planet. This is episode three. Uh, just as a quick uh, set the context again, I was born and raised in the Process Church of the Second Coming which was one of the more infamous cults in the UK and the USA. The cult morphed over the years into Best Friends Animal Society, and I'm here to tell you all about growing up in this somewhat strange, secretive religious commune. As always, your questions will be answered, so don't hesitate to ask. You can contact me at jared at jaredgarrett.com with your comments and your questions. Incidentally, I also do speaking engagements, and you can reach me at the same email address to chat. Maybe your questions and their answers, by the way, will even be featured on the podcast. I'd love to get what uh, y'all are, are wondering about and see if I can answer those questions. Um, before we jump into today's subject, I was surprised at the number of users or listeners all of a sudden. I, I was reached out to on Facebook by um, a listener, and I, I was kind of flabbergasted at, at, at uh, how kind and thoughtful and um, sweet that this listener's uh, comments were. Her name was Linda. Um, I, anyway, I just want to say shout out to Linda. Thank you so much for reaching out to me. Um, I've been planning on getting back into this. You just uh, catalyzed me into getting back into it a little quicker. So um, today we are going to talk about being a kid in this cult uh, with lots of other kids. We're going to keep it to 30 minutes like usual. I want to talk a little bit more about our, our living situation growing up and how libraries probably, and I say probably to be generous, but almost certainly uh, saved my life. So let's launch into being a kid, especially with lots of other kids. So I want to make sure that I, I don't make leaps that make sense to me but won't make sense to new listeners and so I'm going to set the context just a little more and you may already have heard some of this stuff and I'm going to say that that's okay uh, feel free to play this on like 1.5 speed to get through any parts you might have already heard now as you know I was born in Chicago uh, this is after uh, the the cult moved quite a lot. They, I'm not really going to get into a lot of the whole moving around stuff, but uh, it was in Chicago for a time. And while I was in, while they were in Chicago, I was born to a lady um, and the man that she was spending time with, she was already married to a founder of the cult, uh, but he was not my father, but I'm going to tell you exactly how he sounded. So the guy who she was married to, he talked like this right, right through his nose. He sounded quite aristocratic, if you know what I mean, right? And, uh, yes, he was very much a founder of the cult and uh, did his thing. I promise that really was me talking. I worked side by side with this fellow. His name was John. Uh, every summer for a while, um, I uh, know exactly what he sounded like. We built um, some of the earlier cat runs that you'd see at Best Friends. Now, they're not there anymore. They've been replaced by much better facilities. 
over the years, but these early in the day when Best Friends was getting established, I helped build a lot of the cat runs and quite a few of the dog runs as well. So growing up as kids, number one, I would say at least 50% of the kids didn't know who at least one of their parents were. Usually, uh, they we all knew who our mom was, and that was probably just by virtue of having spent some time, you know, several of our first years with, with our mom. Uh, I'm sure we were breastfed, breastfed and, and I'm sure that they were solely and primarily responsible for us. Um, that said, it was not always apparent who our father was, uh, often because our mom had moved on to a different partner um, or was married to somebody else or for some other, some other reason. Maybe the, the person who was our father had moved on, left the cult for a variety of reasons. Uh, it's hard to say. I, I can tell you that my mom, I think I might have mentioned this, she joined the cult when she was already married to her first husband and had her oldest son, uh, my oldest brother, Daniel, uh, and that Marianne, the insane person who ran the cult, uh, did not like my mom or my mom's husband. And so she got him to leave, which was a real shame. Um, just but that, that left my mother and her oldest son, Daniel, uh, who, of course, as I said, married John. This through his name, as you're saying. And uh, they had another son. He also adopted Daniel, which was very kind and good of him. Uh, and then I was born and obviously I wasn't John's son. So. Um, born and raised through the thing, but born in Chicago, before I was even a year, uh, the Chicago branch essentially closed down, probably due to the house that they were occupying, burning down. Don't know how, don't know why. Uh, surely an innocent accident. I really, truly, I have no reason to believe it wasn't anything beyond just an accident of some kind or something terrible, like um, wiring, just deteriorating, who knows. Uh, I went and found the place where the house was when I visited Chicago on business for Amazon. About two years ago, I went there in the middle of the, well, a year and a half at this point, went there in the middle of a, a, a quite a, a winter storm and had a great time there in Chicago. Man, Chicago is just a great town. Um, and then after, uh, I think it was eight months, my dad said we moved to New York because that's where the cult was getting its kind of headquarter itself. In New York, we, we kids, uh, it was the first children's center there in New York, and it was in Manhattan. Um, I walked by the building, um, I think my first trip to New York for Amazon again, uh, a couple of years ago. Um, I didn't recognize it. I, I remembered red bricks, and I'm pretty sure that's all I could see, uh, that, that the building is still red bricks. Um, about 30-plus kids were living in this building, on about one or two different floors. And I just confirmed these details with my father. We had a great dinner recently, uh, which really helped me um, feel closer to him, and also I think it... it it was a good opportunity for him to share some of his thoughts and feelings on my growing up. I really, I believe that it felt, it, it healed our relationship some to be able to be open uh, while we had dinner, burgers and uh, sweet potato fries and stuff. Um, in any case, yeah, he confirmed that, you know, we were about 30 of us living on essentially a floor. And that's basically where we spent our time. As little, little kids, we actually just didn't really leave this main big ballroom style room pretty big um i mean big in terms of you know i was a two three four year old there uh we would we had sleeping mats rolled out um sleeping mats being like a, a sleeping bag or a, a couple of blankets and a flat pillow um with all kinds of different designs i don't remember any specific ones uh and there were about 30 of us kind of so so there'd be a foot or two in between each sleeping area um 
when we weren't sleeping in there, we'd kind of roll things up, move things out of the way so we could goof off and play. Uh, toys were in short supply, as in there were very few, and usually they were owned by um, a kid of a parent who hadn't given up all their resources to be called. And so that parent was then um, providing a few things to their kid. So they were shared, they shared though, and that was nice. Um, and that was kind of life, is just chilling in this room until we were starting going to preschool. And we started going to preschool a couple blocks down the road from the school, from the building. I think we started that when I was four. Still don't know why. The only thing I got out of preschool was a scar on my, on my forehead. Um, and vague memories of uh, kind of dirty streets, um, honking cars, uh, like uh, tenement buildings. In some cases, although it's Manhattan, so that can't be right. Maybe I'm being influenced by like a movie. I don't know. That's weird. Um, but I do remember, you know, the the honking and somewhat dirty streets, uh, but fairly wide sidewalks and walking down some gentle slope, even though there's hardly any hill in, in Manhattan and in New York. So, um, or at least Manhattan, as far as I can recall. So that was... That was life. We, we walked to preschool. There was probably 15 to 20 of us when, by the time I was going to preschool that were going, that were old enough to go. Um, I did a ridiculous attempt to imitate kids that I saw rolling over the top of a, of, of a, of a monkey bars, which had to be 12 feet off the ground, maybe 10 feet off the ground. Um, I slipped, fell, bonked my head pretty hard, woke up with my teeth, my two front teeth kind of uh, sitting next to my face. Uh, with some blood coming down from my forehead, still have the scar under my, under my eyebrow. Good times, good times. Um, that's all I got out of preschool that I can recall. I was already reading before then. Um, don't know how I learned to read, but I know I was reading before I went to school. Um, I know that I do have a couple of funny memento um, report card things from preschool and other early grades saying that I was uh, slow in school. Uh, had trouble playing with 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 other kids, um, and was overall um, a pleasant person, but uh, struggled to find a place to fit in, which is unsurprising because in this cult, we did really interact with other kids, but we didn't really know we weren't interacting in in a normal way. I guess you could say because we were all kind of leery and wary of all the adults. It was not a normal situation. Um, we had to be able to talk to and communicate with adults pretty, you know, um, in, in a very mature way and pretty competently, or we'd get in trouble pretty quick. You know, we'd have to say phrases like, God bless you every time we talk to an adult starting at a very little age. Uh, we'd be doing work also starting at a very little age. We'd have to negotiate our way through um, watchful, weird, weirdly watchful, but also neglect, neglectful eyes of adults. Uh, other things about the situation as a kid, um, you know, sharing a room with you know, 15, 20, 25 other kids, normal. Uh, that's how I grew up. Um, at my, for the very last room I was in before I got out of the cult, I was only sharing with one other person. Um, and I'll get to that later, but that was weird to only be sharing with one other person. Um, as little kids, you know, like I say, 25 or so people in that room. When I was in Dallas, finally, I, I shared a room at one point with eight other boys. Then we cut it down to about six other boys, then two other boys. Then we were back up to three or four, and so on and so forth, just whatever space we could fit in. 
they tried to group us by age a little bit, just I think to have a, a bit of a peer group, which was, you know, thoughtful, you know, come to think of it. Um, and that's uh, a lot of harping on that. A couple more interesting things that you might find interesting. Um, I know for sure that in Manhattan, money was scarce. So uh, Manhattan, uh, other towns that we lived in until I was about oh, nine or ten, we would often we'd do all kinds of activities to try to either make some money or get food at a discounted or free rate. So um, I know we would pile into these kind of older vans. I mean, it's 2018 right now, so this is back in 1980, 81, 82. These Econoline vans or other kind of cargo-type vans or carpeted-on-the-inside vans. We would just all pile into these, or a bunch of us would pile into these things. Uh, we'd show up at like a bakery, and the adult driving the van would take a couple of us with them, and would uh, we all go up here and say, "Hey, do you have any day or two or two day or three day old bread we could have?" Uh, so stale bread was a normal thing. It's all good. Um, it's still edible, perfectly fine. You put some jam on it, and you're good to go. Um, although the amount of jam you put on it could be a real problem if you went overboard. I tell you what, uh, one of the reasons I felt very close to and protected by a girl in Dallas named Robin is because my first day after moving into the house with those bigger kids in Dallas, I'm putting some strawberry jam on a piece of toast and I'm being pretty spare. But this house in Dallas was called Dixie. It's on a street. It was on a street called Dixie. The house is gone. I checked it out when I went there. Um, she looked at how much jam I was putting on and said, Jared, you can put more jam on there. And that was, I felt like instantly like imprinted almost not imprinted. That's kind of a little creepy. I felt very strongly attached and protected and cared for by her because literally nobody had said that to me or anything like that to me or noticed me in a kind way in my memory until that time. And I would get, I was 10. Um, so that, you know, I was 10 nearing 11 actually, because I was in fifth grade. That's, that's really disturbing when I, when I stop and think, but it was also really sweet of her. So Robin, thank you. I still really think very fondly of you. And, you know, that was probably where my love of strawberry jam came from. I kid. Um, so you know, the, the commune for the kids was basically an orphanage because we were being raised by an adult that most of us didn't know. Uh, and certainly almost in every case, wasn't one of our parents or anything. And if it happened to be one of our parents, that parent absolutely doted on and spent their time with their own child, which you know was understandable uh, because this cult was, it is a lot like the Scientology that it came from, you know, you, your kids are not your kids anymore. You got to focus on the cult. And so, um, and, and give all to the cult and give up the kids and put kind of a wall on a barrier. So there's that. If you want to learn more about that, watch Leah, Leah Ramini's um, Scientology stuff. Boy, it's accurate. I watched the first couple of episodes I might go back. It's a little too weird because it's a little too similar. It's not identical by any means, but it's a little too similar to um, culture-wise and posture-wise towards towards members and especially members who are trying to leave. So um, Manhattan was the children's center for a while. Then the cult, it seemed, I don't know what happened, but I really should ask my dad, but I think there may have been a bit of a a schism at some point there where Marianne, this insane lady who was also involved in a terrible sex scandal in British Parliament years before, she and I think her husband at that point, Robert, her only husband, 
that I was, I'm aware of, I don't know, man. They split at some point here. Um, and some people left. And then the cult seemed to move or wander quite a lot. It seemed like we were up and down the East Coast a little bit. Because I know I was in D.C. for a time. Um, and I know that there were other cult members there before and after I was there. We were in New Jersey for like a 10 seconds or something. Long enough for me to set off a pier. And for me to help gather clams in order to have some really terrible baked clams. Um, just terrible. Oh my gosh, they were awful. Um, and we were in a place somewhere in Virginia. I think that they called Angel Mountain or something. But that may have been in uh, eastern rural New York. So we were also there as well, eastern rural New York. Ended up uh, eventually also in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is one of the highlights. We lived in a, in a, in a big house near a town called Quakertown. And, uh, but that wasn't all the kids, but it, it seemed like we split into these kind of core groups, several core groups, and there were a bunch of kids with, with each group. I ended up have, kind of following around with my mother, who her name was Magdalene at the time. When she first joined, she was Katie. That's her original birth name, short for Catherine. She, for the name that she adopted when, when she joined the cult was Seraphine. She became kind of a mystic type person who would do readings for you. Um, she worked with Robert De Niro once, apparently, when we were in New York. Um, and um, so I ended up actually being with her quite a bit. Uh, in Pennsylvania, she was, the, I believe, the leader of that, that branch. It was either her or Faith. No, it was probably Faith, but my mother was important there. Um, so I got to be with her, and my older brother, Matthias, was there, and my oldest brother, Daniel, was there, which is a sign that, you know, that, that, that our parent in that case, was fairly important because they got to have their child with them. Uh, Faith, I believe, was the boss because her kids were there as well, Kara uh, and Eve and, and David. Um, and then um, there were a couple of other kids, but not too many. I remember when a couple more kids showed up, I was delighted to have some possible playmates there. Um, I was there starting at around age six, I think, to about age seven and a bit. It's actually during that time that my oldest brother, Daniel, left the cult. Um don't know how he did that because he wasn't 18, but I guess the age of adult in that place was 17 somehow. Not sure how that works, but it did work for him. So lucky him. He got out. Um, his ending is not good. That'll be a whole podcast uh, episode for you. Uh, and then, so that's, that was Pennsylvania. So a couple of really nice highlights about Pennsylvania. I started learning to cook. I learned to cook next to my mother and also next to a delightful, sweet woman named Bethany. Bethany and a lady named Joanna. These were two of the nicer, more human adults. They saw kids as kids. They were solicitous of us when they could be, especially of me. I think maybe it was me only almost now that I think about it, because I know Joanna was dear friends with my mother and was she just adored my mother. And Bethany, I think the same. Um, I, learned to, I learned to cook from them a little bit and definitely learned a lot to cook from my mom. And that skill has been with me since then. I, I just love experimenting with food and trying interesting new things, which I'm grateful for. Also, uh, Pennsylvania, biggish house, um, quite big with, a, I think, a landing at the top of the stairs that looked out over part of the house. Yeah, that was fun. Um, absolutely that, because I have memories of my brother doing silly things there. Um, we had a lake down a hill. Uh, I mean, in my memory, it's a lake, but I was small then. It was probably a big pond, but it froze over in the winter, guys. And we got these old torn, torn up ratty skates from some, some some thrift store or secondhand store, and we were able to try skating. Boy, I sucked. But Eve was really helpful in trying to get me to learn to skate, and I appreciated her for doing that. And 
the um, Julius would do a funny thing. Julius is another kid who came with us. And Daniel did it too, actually, a little bit. Uh, when the pond was frozen over, I would like lie on my stomach with my hands to my sides and my knees bent. And then uh, the older boy, the bigger boy, would put their hands at the bottom of my feet and they would dig their feet into the solid snow. They'd be lying on the snow with a little bit of their body on the ice. And so we'd count to three. And once we hit three, we would both just spring and push off. And I would push off the older kid, Daniel or Julius's hands. And I'd go sliding across that ice at a pretty good clip. You know, again, I'm six or seven. I thought anything faster was really a good clip. I would go a long way in my in my mind from back then. I mean, I'm thinking of Calvin and Hobbes, right? Uh, the Calvin and Hobbes imagination situations where they think they're flying to space. In my mind, I was going to space or something. Uh, that was a great, that was a great time. Man, that was fun. I can still remember the sensation of the cold ice sliding just under my face, kind of refrigerating it a little bit. Um, I tried to fly in Pennsylvania a couple of times, <laughs> making these big wings with cardboard. Uh, really came close to breaking a lot of bones there. Don't know why I didn't. Uh, there was a lot of time where adults weren't watching us because why would they? They were busy trying to fundraise and make money for the cult or do other mandates from the cult. And the kids were very much secondary or tertiary or whatever, even uh, in their minds, which is a real shame. Uh, Pennsylvania was a highlight. There were wild turkeys that would come through there. Beautiful, uh, sorry to stomach, beautiful green trees with vines. Had that in Virginia as well in western New York or eastern New York. Um, just a beautiful, beautiful time, despite the cult, uh, beautiful place. And it's actually the book, it's actually the setting for, for my first book, Beyond the Cabin. Beyond the Cabin is this novelization of me growing up in the cult. Again, it's a novelization. So yes, the cult is depicted accurately. Um, and the situation and culture and the way the kids are treated and behave is very much accurate. Uh, the language of the cult is accurate. Um, and the way adults and kids interact is very much accurate. And the terrible events that happened in Beyond the Cabin really did happen over a 10-year period in my real life, but six months in the, in the life of the main character of Beyond the Cabin. The character in Beyond the Cabin is absolutely me. He just learns his lessons quicker. Um, it's somewhat dramatized for the story. And there are some nice, hopeful, good events that happen in Beyond the Cabin that didn't happen in my real life or happened over a much longer period of time. It's a good book, universally loved, um, very highly rated on Amazon. Uh, it's one of my bestsellers too, by the way. I write books, of course. So Beyond the Cabin takes place in the Pennsylvania setting. Um, and I have strong, beautiful memories of that place, despite the difficulty of the way I was being raised. A um, couple of other interesting highlights, just so that you know that it wasn't all just games and happy. Um, when we were in Angel Mountain, we were being watched over by one man. He had one son. He did not do it on his kid. He actually was, he had a ter terrible temper and he, he selected his kid to receive the brunt of it. We saw a lot of abuse of, of that boy uh, from a screwdriver handle smacking into his head and causing it to bleed rather badly. Just endless yelling, um, really bad. The man had a bad temper. It turned out he was an alcoholic, which is a real shame. Um, other things, uh, a cat named Waffen. I don't even know what the heck that is going on with the cat named Waffen. Um, as for um, our living situation, I want to get to Dallas here. I'm only going to touch on it briefly. When I was in almost finished with third grade, I was moved to Denver. Um, 
That's where my dad was. He left soon after, though, so that can't be why I was sent there. Uh, finished third grade there, went to fourth grade in a new school, and then as fourth grade was winding down, I told all the people, the friends I'd made, um, this was Vanderhoof Elementary, by the way, and I think Aurora or Golden, um, told them all, I won't see you because never, I'm never in the same school two years in a row. Uh, bye. And then I was still there, came fifth grade. Fifth grade rolls around. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm still here. So I go to school the first day and everybody's like, Jared, you're still here. I know I'm still here. This is amazing. Uh, I was happy. Um, I had friends. I had a bit of roots. The teachers recognized me and they were very sweet and very kind. I think they were cottoning on to Jared's kind of living in a weird situation here. There were bullies there. I generally avoided them. And sometimes there was one, which was not nice. Um, one month into my fifth grade year, I got word I was being shifted to Dallas, which is actually where all the kids in the cult were going. Dallas had become the most financially successful branch. It was sending a lot of money every every month to the headquarters, which at that point was still in Arizona, but would soon be in, in southern Utah. Um, their fundraising efforts were great, probably because they had great locations. They had some very motivated people who were being motivated by a complete um, psychotic sociopath, I guess you could say, and a megalomaniac who ran that branch. Uh, they had started their own little private school a year or two before, so probably when I was in third grade, that was catering only to cult kids. And so it became the new children's center. All children were expected to go there as soon as they could. So I was sent there after one month in fifth grade. And in the same, again, in the same school I'd been in for fourth grade. So imagine my frustration, my anger, really my fury, I, it would be fair to, to say, at being moved from a happy, first time happy in my, in my recollection situation to a new place. Yeah, I knew all those kids or I knew a lot of those kids, but I was so mad. My first night there, I was so unbelievably awkward. Some kids came out and said, hi, we're, we're glad you're here. And I put up my hand and said, how? as if I were some Native American speaking, you know, their language. I don't even know what. That set the precedent for me. I mean, I think I even said I like Indians or something, which is terrible. Um, and that set the precedent for me being a, just a chronic, terrible liar. I made up the worst kinds of lies and stories. And that'll be our next podcast season uh, episode, and that'll be about the lies that I told. Um, so... The, uh, the situation there was I moved into a house with, so, so the situation in Dallas was pretty pretty complicated, but I'll try to simplify. So, because we're running a little bit short on time, um, Dallas was a branch. It had three, no, it had five houses under its control. Two of the houses were on a street called Swiss Avenue, so they were called Swiss One, or Swiss Adults and Swiss, Swiss Kids. They were right next to each other. I moved into the house called Swiss Kids, of course. Uh, living in that same house with all the other kids in that branch, except for the two daughters of the megalomaniac psychopath woman who ran the group, plus her husband, the British uh, founder, one of the British founders of the whole cult. Um, then another house was uh, down the street. Uh, that was our kind of the, the branch's actual headquarters. It's where we had our Sunday services. It's where they ran their operations and stuff for the charitable things that they were doing, like we were they were doing visits to hospitals. Um then they had a house for the boys, or, or the older kids, rather. That's right, for the older kids, and um, that was in a that was 
quite a few miles away on a street called Dickinson. That house was called Dixie, short for Dickinson. And then they had a house for other purposes. Not entirely certain of what those purposes were beyond the school. Pretty sure the school occupied the whole thing. It was a pretty small house on a street called Bowser. Um, and there were, the house had basically been designed. No, it was pretty big, actually. It had been divided into several different rooms. And the rooms were being used for as classrooms and for our op opening um, kind of exercise thing called focus. I'm going to make a note here for some future uh, episodes. And so I was moved into Swiss Kids um, and lived there for about a year uh, with other kids about my age or near my age. A couple of twins, uh, Asa and Bart, plus a few other uh, a few other kids. We were all, you know, boys shared a room um, and the girls were actually in the Swiss adults house. So um, that's that. That's that situation. I want to, I did promise to talk about libraries a little bit. And so we're going to go just a couple of minutes over, over uh, 30 minutes, but not too much longer. So um, we'll get into Dallas. Dallas is going to be at, at least one, one episode, probably two all by itself because Dallas was insane. Remember I was angry um, and I had all reasons to, lots of reasons to be angry. Um, but I was reading a lot by that time. Um, I was about 10, 10 or 11 or so. I, I, I turned 10 soon after I think I moved there. Or was it 11? It was 11 soon after I moved there. So um, I was reading everything I could get my hands on. We made regular visits to libraries uh, growing up, you know, up until that point. Um, and it turned out that there was a library not too far from the house when I lived in Dickinson, in Dixie, the one on Dickinson. Uh, and then I could also get to the downtown library if I got on a bus, which I did more than I probably was allowed to. Uh, the books that I picked up were arranged in everything. They were, they were everything. It was Encyclopedia Brown, Black Stallion, anything about horses. I was obsessed with horses, like many kids are. I, I read Black Stallion, uh, every book that was written in that series by Walter Farley. And then, of course, many years later, his son. I read them several times. I read them so closely that the first time I got on a horse, I was, I think, 13 or 14. And uh, the person who was getting us on the horses said, Jared, I thought you said you'd never been on a horse. I'm like, I hadn't been on a, I haven't been on a horse. And she said, you're riding that as if you've been on a horse many times. And that was very gratifying to me. Walter Farley and Alec and the Black, they taught me how to ride a horse. Um, that's pretty cool. Um, being able to read escape from this alone place where I felt, even though I was surrounded by people, kids my age even sometimes, many cases, and adults who just didn't care, uh, a mother I talked to twice a year, birthday and Christmas, a dad I talked to twice a year, birthday and Christmas, the dad who I'd only figured out was my dad when I was eight. Um, this was a crappy existence. Man, I was pissed off at being torn out of Denver and sent to this Dallas terrible orphanage, essentially, um, sharing a room with 15 other kids in some cases, or six other kids in other cases. And in Denver, I'd been sharing a room with two other boys because there were that was it, three boys there, plus a couple little kids. Um, so I was furious, guys. And a couple of years later, some terrible, th terrible things happened. And in Denver, some terrible things happened. Uh, I was very in my own head, very isolated for a lot of reasons. Some because I just couldn't stand. I didn't know how to be with people. 
I couldn't stand trying to talk to people when I didn't know what to expect from them. They were so unpredictable, especially the adults. I didn't know if they were the conversation was going to turn into them giving me a punishment for something I said or something I, they imagined I did. So I was very in my own head and um, went through cycles of anger, uh, grief at times for other things we'll talk about, um, sadness, like grief and sadness are different things. Um, also good times, you know, I felt happy sometimes as well. I don't think I was bipolar. It was just a tough situation. But I, if I didn't have the escape of books and the hope that I could maybe make a life like what I was seeing in those books, I probably would have been pretty despondent to the point of hopeless and not, not feeling like there was really anything for me in life uh, because the cult sucked so bad. And there was nobody in the cult at all who cared about me. Uh, and the moment of Robin saying, hey, you can get more strawberry jam. Um, it's one moment, guys, out of a lifetime, really, almost. One moment of somebody seeing me, seeing me, noticing me, and reaching out to me saying, hey, it's okay to do a thing. Here, you, This isn't you're just being kind to me, being thoughtful of me. Um, and again, seeing me for the first time, I felt like I'd never been seen before and cared about before, really. It was always just whatever they told me to do, I, got, I had to do it. I didn't get any choices, didn't get any love. And so um, having Robin was like having a big sister, a real one, you know, who really cared. Uh, even though that was just a moment, and there were a mo another moment or two here and there. And then there were, of course, friends. But we were friends by circumstance, not by choice, right? I mean, we... We were all stuck together, so we had to basically, we were each other's playmates, whether we liked it or not, and a lot of the time I chose to not. Stories, they really gave me the hope that I needed to have. I will say that sometimes maybe I shouldn't have been in books, maybe I should have been connecting more with the kids around me. Um, it's a mistake that I made, and I live with it, and i uh, probably gotten over it. I don't think it's too much of a problem anymore. I've got a great big family now. Um, anyway, so... Um, just just uh, just kind of sum all that up with uh, the books that I read uh, from Encyclopedia Brown to Black Stallion to other horse books like King of the Wind and Black Beauty and stuff. These books absolutely saved my life. Uh, being able to go to libraries and just basically read literally every science fiction and fantasy book they had uh, saved my life. I read about 10 books a week, um, sometimes more, eh, rarely less, most of the time more. Um, for many, many, many years. Uh, I tried to do the math to figure out how many books I've read. I mean, and it's, <laughs> I mean, I read at least 500 books a year, sometimes more, uh, which is astonishing to me to think about. Um, but yeah, I read fast and I read a lot. Um, books have been my life, guys. Uh, now they are part of my living. And so that's what I have to say about that. I've been at 35 minutes, let's stop there. Again, if you have questions, yeah, reach out at Jared at JaredGarrett.com. There's probably some way for me to use these platforms that you can comment, but probably find me at Jared at JaredGarrett.com. That's J-A-R-E-D-G-A-R-R-E-T-T.com. Or find me on Twitter. I'm just Jared Garrett there. Or find me at Jared Garrett Author on Facebook. And ask your questions, comments. I'm happy to answer any questions. Got a lot of podcast episodes coming up. We'll talk about being a, me being a liar. We'll talk about something called Focus Class, which taught me to be a better liar. We'll talk about an episode called Dallas Angry Beans or something along those lines. Um, 
and we'll also talk with them sometime about what it is about hot dogs that makes me want to hurl. Um, and that's all I got to say. Thanks for tuning in this time, guys. Take care of yourselves um, and tune in next time for episode, uh, I guess we're at four, uh, when we'll talk about uh, the reputation that Jared gained of being a storyteller. But really what I was being was a liar uh, with a highlight of a 14-second kiss. All right, guys. Uh, tune in next time. See you then.